Hello and welcome to Unfiltered, an intellectual podcast. So today we wanted to talk about this new Reuters Ipsos poll, and this was conducted with the University of Virginia Center for Politics, and this was asking people about controversial issues uh, regarding whites, Black Lives Matter, and Antifa. So just to first give you an understanding of what this poll was capturing. Uh, so they took a sample of about 5,000 people. This was uh, 40% Democrat, 35% Republican, and the remainder were independent. Uh, considering that probably about a quarter of Americans are Dems and another quarter are Republicans, I consider this sample probably D plus 15, D plus 10, and Republicans are also probably about R plus 10. But because Democrats have the clear weight advantage here, I would probably add about 5 to 10% to each answer. So the first question they were asking them was, um, do you believe that a Confederate monument should remain in public space? And what was interesting to see was that a clear majority of people believe that the Confederate monument should stay where they are. And this is a little interesting because it goes against the media narrative talking about how we need to remove these Confederate statues because they're offensive and they remind people about slavery. But it seems that most people believe that, no, you should keep these Confederate monuments up. They meant a lot as far as the reunification of the South with the North after the Civil War. And that it's important to remember our history. Sure, there was some bad parts of the Confederacy where you were practicing slavery, but uh, there was this idea of, we're going to be free of the oppressive taxation that the North is imposing on us because we are a Southern farming community, whereas the North was a more of a manufacturing community. So the tariffs were benefiting the North while hurting the South. And this played into the Civil War, which is why the Civil War wasn't necessarily just about slavery. And these monuments are more than just a reminder of slavery. And I have an interesting perspective that just came to mind. Um, when you think about somebody who's self-aware and they think about their own history, they tend to look at their entire history, the good and the bad, in, in quite a measured way. And they value the, the negative and difficult experiences they had because they're A, um, lessons for the future, and B, they form a critical identity of who they are. And that's indistinguishable from the person that they are today. Now, if you look at somebody who's not a healthy individual, somebody who has, um, they may say in psychology, uh, complexes or um, defense mechanisms, that's somebody who ignores their history and tries to, and has a difficult time re remembering or reflecting on difficult or traumatic periods in their past. And that's considered almost universally to be um, something that needs to be dealt with and um, opened up so that you can be liberated, so that you can engage your past um, from a place of contemplation. So I find it very interesting that the left is trying to um, erase this negative history instead of understanding it and, and winding it and weaving it and observing it as a part of our greater historical tapestry, which makes us who we are. Um, it seems like uh, for the people who are always calling the right crazy, uh, that they they resemble um, they resemble crazy themselves. Yeah, we have the common gripe of not wanting to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend who comes into a relationship with a lot of emotional baggage. 
So I think what you're describing is if you're not going to confront your past, you're just going to have all this emotional baggage. So the right is a lot more willing to confront our past, understand, you know, there were some wrongs that our ancestors committed, but they also had a lot of great ideas. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take those good ideas, we're going to discard the bad ones, and we're going to improve from there. Whereas the left seems to just want to try to forget and remove the past without learning from it. And all that's going to end up is that you're just going to be stuck with a lot of this emotional baggage. Unresolved emotional baggage. Yeah, and we always know how those relationships turn out. It's usually in disaster. <laughs> Catastrophic. Yeah, your house might be on fire, your car could get, get keyed up and smashed. Yeah, but you're so caught up in, in your own psychosis, you don't even notice. Yeah, we don't want that to happen to our country. Yeah, we want to be measured. We want to be adults. Yeah, and, and so going along with this, uh, the, the poll is also asking, uh, do you view political correctness as a threat to liberty? And interestingly enough, a clear majority of people do view political correctness as a threat to liberty. And this really plays into what President Trump's entire platform was about. He was saying, we don't have time for political correctness. We have a lot of problems. We need to start being honest. And we can't censor ourselves just because we're trying to be polite to other people. Right. And this is a place where I think um, the, the poll is actually um, underrepresenting the support for um, uh, anti-political correctness. Um, so if we look at a Gallup poll party affiliation survey, which was taken just last month, August 6th, 2017, Democrats and Republicans both made up 28 percent of the uh, population, the electorate of the voting population. Independents were 41 percent. Now, in this survey, independents are only 14 percent. Now, I would argue that many of many who supported the Trump phenomenon and, uh, and essentially this new kind of this new alternative right, not quite, quote, not necessarily the alt right, although it includes the alt right, but this new alternative right platform. Many of these people are defects from the Democrats and the Republicans, people who defected from these parties and became independents include and that includes other independents who formerly were independent anyway. And so underrepresenting that critical population, I think, is really not catching the, the new mainstream narrative, which is diverging from the, the narrative of the uh, fake media. And so I think the real support out there in the people of America is much higher than is represented on the survey. I, I agree with that. I don't think President Trump would have really won such a landslide in the Electoral College if there weren't this huge group of people who are just sick and tired of political correctness. And I think like even those like a quarter of people identify as Dems, another quarter as Republicans. I don't think there were too many people on the Republican side who are really staunch Republicans. They were, I think many of them were just, you know, I really don't like what the policies uh, the left and the Dems have to offer. So I'm going to go vote for the Republicans because what else can I do? And then President right. Trump comes along and they see this is, much closer to the types of policies that I want. So I'm going to go ahead and vote for this guy. And that's what I see with this um, survey. It seems like these are establishment questions, and we'll, we'll get into the questions in just a little bit. But um, they remind me of the response rate to these questions, or the affirmative or the negative or, uh, in these questions, reminds me of the positions that establishment um, supporting people would take. Now, the, the election was based on uh, counter-establishment um, ideals or feelings. 
And so I think as we go through each one of these questions, we can see, we can expect that uh, the, the new narrative that's coming up will, will greatly supplant what we see here. And so that the, some of the conclusions that we get from, from this study should be even stre strengthened even more, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, so just going off of that idea, so about a third of people believe that America must preserve its white European heritage. And I think this number should really be closer to probably 35 to 40 percent or more. And some people think of this, okay, this is a clearly a white nationalist stance. But let's think about this logically. So we think it's okay for blacks to want to preserve their heritage. We think it's okay for Latinos to want to protect their respective country's heritage. We think it's okay for Chinese people and Japanese people to protect their respective heritage. But why do we seem to go through some sort of mental gymnastics and thinking that it's not okay for white European Americans to believe that they should be able to preserve their white European heritage? Right. And let's focus on the question itself, right? It, the question is, America should protect and preserve its white European heritage. Now, this is a fact. Um, America did have a white European heritage. It began with the Naturalization Act of 1790, which limited immigration to free white persons of good character. Um, other nationalities were excluded, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, Native Americans weren't granted citizen, citizenship until the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. So we're looking at a historical legacy of a fundamentally white culture in a white country, which says nothing about the virtues or the detriments of multiculturalism. It's a different topic, but we are looking at a history that is essentially white and essentially unique as a, a history of settlement to the United States. Um, this began to diverge and eventually diverged quite sharply in 1965 with the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, overturning nearly 200 years of American precedent, and that's American as a founded nation, and closer to 350 years of colonial precedent. So if we look to the history of America, there is a white heritage, and if there are things that attract people and things about this country that are unique and great that, that cause people to want to come here and that has made America great in the past, that has to do with its European heritage. And uh, I think that's just factual. And to, if you want to support the history of this country, um, that comes part and parcel with it. Yeah, I think the uh, Immigration Act from the 60s, we can thank Mr. Kennedy and President Johnson for that. Uh, the president, I believe, not necessarily according to the Immigration Act, but to his uh, Great Society, which was essentially the, the new wave of welfare that we see, his plan was to have these and we're voting for Democrats for the next 200 years. Yeah, those Democrats, huh? They're, they're really nifty people. And, you know, the outcome is um, in the 1940s, we had 90% uh, white country, and um, they're projected to be a minority, 47% in 2015 by Pew Research. Um, I think that's causing a little bit of agitation, not that uh, the good people of America aren't welcoming to people of different cultures and races, um, but that's startling, especially when the immigration act was passed explicitly stating that this will not change the ethnic makeup of the united states you know um less than uh, 50 years later and uh, it looks a bit different around here yeah i mean i think if you're going to change the demographic makeup of a country that's a decision that has to be set to a referendum and the people might want to consult the citizens yeah, the citizens should consent in inviting other people into the country. And if you're going to fundamentally change the demographics, 
the people ought to have a say in it. I mean, it's in the Mexican Constitution, I believe, that they're not allowed to significantly change the demographic makeup of Mexico. Right, and we consider uh, we we never um, criticize Mexico for racism for that kind of thing, which shows that it is a domestic phenomenon, and um, the objectives are domestic. And many people, Stefan Molyneux comes to mind presently. Um, many people say that these voters were simply brought in to replace small government voting Americans, which began with the colonists who had rigid uh, self-determination. They had to build a country from absolutely nothing. So they're extremely self-reliant and, and they rejected the English crown, which was essentially taxing them to death with the, so they're essentially small government people. It's in the cultural DNA of these particular people in this particular part of the world. And um, these people, the other people come in, since they won't vote for a large government, these um, communists and socialists and Demo essentially in the democratic party brought in new voters from countries that would. And when you look at it in a very simplistic equation, you've got a very rich and prosperous country uh, full of white people, quite literally. And people from the developing world see um, the welfare state and a big government simply as a mechanism to transfer that wealth. Um, who wouldn't be interested by such a prospect? Precisely. And going off of that, if you think about the, the founders and the early Americans, they went to war over a level of taxation that's minuscule compared to what we have right now. And, and so it's interesting just to look back and see how much we've changed in our values since that time. Yeah, it's amazing. And to come, go along with that, um, there's been a relentless criticism of, you know, by this cultural Marxist media for white people um, just expressing their own whiteness and um, ele essentially elevating non-white minorities to this untouchable status as constantly virtuous characters um, promoting this interracial integration. I don't think, I guess the point is, I don't think that these attitudes um, could have been inculcated in any other way than by a pervasive and essentially oligopolistic almost quasi-monopolistic media apparatus and um, uh, a subverted education system, uh, which would have reached its apex with Common Core. Uh, God bless Donald Trump for uh, removing that threat. But um, it seems like there's been a, a perfect storm of elements that have really just lulled this country into a sense of oblivion and opened the doors and the floodgates to... Um, to, to at least poverty, to say the least, but uh, destruction, uh, to put it more closely to the truth. Yeah, my last point on this uh, survey question is that we have to remember that white European heritage includes this idea of a constitutional republic. So, in one sense, you could view the response to, the, to this question as saying, yes, maybe we should keep some of these great ideas that our ancestors uh, who founded the United States they had some great ideas and we should hold on to them. Right. And I don't think you necessarily need to be a white person to agree with that. Well, I think the evidence is that many people from around the world that aren't white come here. Now, that, that's where the question is, are they coming for the welfare state or the, the riches and, and the standard of living? Um, or are they coming because they love America? And I think um, anybody who answers that question um, uh, in uh, dichotomy is either just has simply has the question wrong or they're, they're answering it in a politicized way. But I think there are lots of people that come for the ideals of America. 
And um, I think they are attractive, and they've been inspiring for for uh, decades, e even if in in the current state they are declining a bit. Yeah, I mean, for example, in India, it's it's a huge honor to be able to go to America because America is thought of as this place of freedom where you can have a great standard of living, especially if you work hard, you can achieve the American dream. And I think those types of ideals resonate with a lot of people who come over here as high-skilled workers, where you might, I'm sure there are people who are also from the lower skill area who share some of those ideas, but I think that cohort has significant influence from people who want to come to the U.S. because of a generous welfare state. I just had an interesting thought that marries both of those uh, concepts in an unholy way. So I guess the American dream was based on this rugged individualism and self-reliance. You had a country that you could you could establish if you could stand it. So it was very difficult. Uh, lots of it was barren, but it was there. And you had risks. You had Native Americans. You had um, you, wild animals. You name it. You didn't have a government. But if you could build on the soil, you could make a farm or eventually later on in history start a factory or you could you could make it. And since you didn't have a dominant class um, that was extracting that labor, you could go as high as your own your own individual uh, willpower and effort could take you. And so that's really wedded to this idea of small government without the government really um, taking your wealth and preventing you from rising in society, your life is literally in your own hands. And that's the American dream. Um, and that's also a white concept because it was white settlers that ex had that experience and created the society based on that, um, that kind of cultural experience or expression of the, the reality that was on the ground. However, now I think that's been married with this, this new idea where if you are not American, if you're a minority from a country, especially a non-white country, you can benefit from the affirmative action system, which is a mechanism of the government. So you can get kind of a stairway um, up through the system if you come from specifically disadvantaged um, areas. And so that's a different kind of American dream. The difference is that the original American dream is completely self-sustaining and virtuous and efficient and free and created the economic superpower that we see or that we saw at least uh, a few decades ago, which is in decline today. Um, but this new system is a stair is um, is an escalator. It's kind of like one of those Chinese escalators where they go up and then they break right at the top and you fall right down and it's curtains from there. And um, that's that's the new American dream. And I don't think it will last too long. I think, as Ann Coulter would say, it'll end in a, a third world disaster. Yeah, I mean, I think now that we have President Trump in charge, uh, we're making America great again. So I think that old American dream is going to live another day. And so I think your whole point about affirmative action serves as a good transition point to the next question on the survey. And that was asking if people believe that whites are under attack in this country. And so the survey says about 39% of people agree with this. I think this is probably closer to half. And so I, let's just think about why would whites want it? Like, why would they believe that they're under attack in this country? One, affirmative action is working against them to keep them out of university and allowing people who are less qualified but have a different skin color makes it easy for those people to get in. And then you also have the media always going on and on and on about how white people are bad, especially how straight white males are the worst people of them all and how we just need to destroy whiteness in our culture. And then people are wondering, oh, why, why do so many white people feel that they're under attack? <laughs> right. 
And, you know, it, white people are remembered for their sins, for slavery, for colonialism, uh, for homophobia, for sexism and keeping women out of society. Um, that, that's the white history that's remembered. That's the only permissible white history, whereas uh, a more bountiful white history of, of creation and generative history that's um, generated the country that we live in. And um, that's, that's taboo. To talk about that with any kind of pride um, is, is simply not permitted. Whereas the inverse, um, if you're a Latino, if you're black, you're encouraged to think as an African-American and to go all the way back to Africa for your roots and to name your children some kind of name that they probably don't really have in Africa, but sounds like an African name, and to join a religion that's not essentially white, uh, Islam rather than Christianity, at least among a certain portion of that community. Uh, and that goes across just about every race, but, but the white race. And if you look at character tropes in Hollywood and on uh, the television, you, you just see you see consistently um, white people being the foolish person, the racist person, the sexist person, the truly evil and greedy person. And you see minorities typically taking the role of the oppressed person, the underrepresented person, but the virtuous person, the person who will break through adversity, etc. We see these tropes all over the place. Uh, and for me, it's, it's, um, it's a clear indication that, that whites are under attack in, in this country. Yeah, and speaking of of the bountiful history of whites and like all the benefits that they've donned on society. You just think about it as like white countries have, I would argue provided a much higher standard of living for blacks and Latinos in, in, in these white countries than they would have in their home countries. Are we not going to discuss that or we can even go into Africa. So in Zimbabwe, they rely on these white farmers to, feed their people and when they tried to banish the white farmers yes many were sent away but then the country fell into starvation and then it took those white farmers out of the kindness of their heart to still grow produce to feed the people of zimbabwe and you also see a similar situation in south africa where you're having the bloody murder of many white farmers because it's this whole idea of we are africans and we're going to retake this land from the whites but what they don't realize is that you know, the whites are providing a lot of a benefit to your country. And if you just eliminate them, you're going to have a lot of untold and unthought of repercussions for that. So I think it's very unfair just to solely attack white people without also considering the benefits that they've donned on society. Yeah. And I think if you look at a society like South Africa, um, you're looking at a late stage uh, representation of America if the immigration continues at the levels it has been since 1965. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty tragic thought. I, I agree. It is. And so uh, regarding that survey question, on the other end, they were uh, also asking if people believe that racial minorities are under attack. And so with this, uh, about half of people, a little bit over half, believe that racial minorities are under attack. And I think this plays along with this whole media narrative of pushing on one end you have black the black lives matter cause saying that we have all these black people dying from police officers murdering them and then you also have to show the plight of of, of the black community of what's going on in the latino community and this whole narrative of okay you have this big oppressive police state oppressing these people so clearly these racial minorities are under attack but it also ignores that, you know, we've created all these 
programs like affirmative action and scholarships specifically for blacks and Latinos so that they're able to succeed where these same opportunities don't uh, apply for whites. So I think our society has bent over backwards to cater towards these type of minority. And it seems like if you're going to say that racial minorities are under attack, there isn't much of a logical basis behind that. Well, let's take a look at how someone could come to the logical conclusion that that is true. And of course, it's with our own, own old friend, the fake news. The MIT Center for Civic Media presents a very interesting um, depiction of the Trayvon Martin case, and it separates it into five acts of how this became a local story and it ballooned to a national story. So in the first month, in their first act, it was just a local news story, just like tens of thousands that happen yearly in the United States. Um, in the second uh, act, it, the, the time starts to decrease and we have, in two weeks, race-based companies, media companies, and they have a presence on Twitter, they have, um, they have websites, that they, they're significant networks. I'm talking about the color of change, the global grind. Now, it's funny because if you search Twitter, at least I have, for the KKK, you can't find it. But if you look for black nationalist groups or uh, black supremacist groups, such as the ones just mentioned, Color of Change, Global Grind, and there are many more that are far more explicit than these two, um, they are uh, prolific and they're producing a lot of very, very um, aggressive anti-white content. And that's completely permissible on Twitter. So we're looking at clear racism that's permitted on t Twitter and the, the exclusion of the same from another group. So anyway, so these companies began to drive the story through their networks and their social media presence and connecting through their celebrities in their networks, such as Spike Lee, Wyclef Sean, and numerous others. So they, um, and interestingly, Color of Change has played a major role in drumming up support for removing Confederate monuments, which is a topic of this discussion. In fact, their Twitter page cover photo shows them uh, shows the monument saying, "Remove all white supremacist symbols of hate." You know, give me a break. Nevertheless, they drummed up the story and brought us to the third act, where the national media begins to pick up the story um, from these race-based networks, and they adopt the narrative. They adopt the narrative that has already been creative created by these black nationalist um, organizations. And then you see things like the uh, Zimmerman 9-11 tape surface, and they're selectively edited by, nine, uh, by NBC. And we discussed this in our previous podcast um, about these issues, and I recommend anyone taking a look at that if they'd like more depth. So the mainstream media picks it up, and that brings us to our fourth phase. The political system picks it up. President Obama weighs in and says, my son would look a lot like Trayvon. The stand your ground law is brought into play for a political agenda, a political agenda as a, a bargaining chip, and people pressure the state of Florida to remove the stand your 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 ground law uh, thing. And finally, at this point in the fourth stage, the right wing reacts and begins put, portraying uh, Trayvon in a different way. They begin producing a co counter narrative, and this is when you start seeing him looking, uh, be actually becoming the assailant instead of being a child. He's now an adult. Um, they is instead of being innocent, um, they present him as he presented himself on Facebook um, as essentially a thug, right? Um, as, as a tough guy and, and using street drugs and the whole thing. And finally, in the fifth phase, you have the court case and the non-guilty verdict, which was obvious, right? Now, let's keep in mind that the Obama administration pressured um, the local officials to, to, tr to try uh, George Zimmerman, whereas otherwise it was a clear case that they were not going to bring charges. 
Um, so when the non-guilty verdict um, was the, the outcome, the predictable outcome, people went wild and the media flame, uh, fanned the flames and that led to a mass demonstration. So now people viewing this are seeing mass support, physical turnout, including riots, um, which gives them the impression that yes, there must be an epidemic of uh, black or police on black violence or by extension white on black violence and as far as Europe where I was at the time when this thing played out I have lots of people commenting on you know the state of America where how can you live in a place where police officers are just gunning down black people left and right that's the impression that they got from this one case this was the first case that they heard and that was followed up by many more cases so it's very easy to see how this artificial case one case among many which is actually statistically a minority it's unlikely it's far less likely for cases to turn out this way than, than um you know it's its own inverse uh but nevertheless this is the perception that people get and you can see you can see the dna of that particular perception yeah i think uh, i think you bring up a very good point there because I think once you have the media starting to fan the flames, like we all remember when CNN was airing, uh, they, they all made the hand gesture that signifies hands up, don't shoot. They were pushing this whole narrative that you have all these innocent suspects being gunned down by police officers. But when you actually review the, what happened in those cases, you realize that those suspects weren't exactly angels and that they either had a criminal record, they were being violent at the time, they're resisting arrest, they're doing all these things wrong. So maybe our sympathy isn't as justified in those cases. And that brings us back to our uh, whites uh, oppressed in this country, you know, and specifically this media narrative is oppressive to whites because it's not true. And if I may um, add, it, whites actually are um, oppressed in the sense that if you've seen the recent Deaths of Despair study that came out by Princeton's, uh, Princeton University's Annie Case and Angus Deaton, it, it shows stark, starkly real facts of uh, midlife suicides among whites skyrocketing, overdoses skyrocketing, addiction, mental health problems um, going through the roof, the ability, their ability to work declining, and general declines in uh, mortality. It's been an epidemic. And the interesting thing is that this is exclusively a white problem and, and more importantly, a white middle and lower class problem where other races have not seen this effect at all. This trend has not affected them whatsoever, nor has this been a trend on a global scale. This has been an American problem, not exclusively among white in, whites in the lower class, but it's heavily concentrated there. And does it correlate with white demonization, affirmative action, and essentially white displacement, displacement by mass third world migration? I mean, you tell me. I don't know. You can make your own conclusion. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the only reasons we're really studying this is because President Trump won the election. And these were the people who the president called the forgotten men and women of America. And we're going to forget them no longer. And then once President Trump was able to build his gigantic coalition to go and vote for him, the media was interested. Where do these people come from? How do we not know where they were? Well, it's because you've been ignoring them for all this time. Yeah, I think they were the demographic that they wanted to keep their mouths shut. And they thought that if they intimidated them enough, that they would just simply go along for the ride and vote with the Democrats. But it turned out that these were actually um, human beings, animated people, um, 
at the end, and they actually did have interests that they would protect. And I think that was a shock to the Democrats. I, I think it was. And I think the media probably thought it was winning in, in this culture war because, I mean, as the survey shows, about one third of people support Black Lives Matter. Uh, while it's not a clear majority, it seems like they have this growing cohort of people who are probably most likely on the left who are supporting what their main cause is. And so I think on one end you have the the racial narrative, and then on the other hand you also have this attack on free speech, like what we were talking about with political correctness. And interestingly enough, the Brookings Institute, uh, one of their fellows over there, had done a survey of college students' understanding of the First Amendment and their opinions on it. And so what it goes through and it explains is that less than half of people believe that the First Amendment protects hate speech, which it does. Um, half believe it's okay to disrupt a speaker they don't like, for example, like Milo Yiannopoulos. And a fifth believe using violence is acceptable to stop a speaker. And then to, uh, as a conclusion, they say uh, about half believe that college should censor offensive or biased speech rather than uphold the traditional ideas of a university, which is to bolster free dialogue. And so it's interesting that, you know, with all of this free speech week going on at Berkeley, the media is pushing this narrative that, you know, hate speech is not protected and it's OK. And you should really try to do what you can to protest anyone who is espousing an opinion that you view as offensive. And they've even made it popular enough that a significant amount of people believe it's okay to use violence to condemn speech that they deem offensive. Right. And, um, yeah. Sorry, and so what ahead. I was just going to say was that the mainstream media tries to push its own view and narrative down through one is this is how you should think about racial disparity in the U.S., make it seem like racial relations are really bad. And this gives this uh, perception to everyone else in the world that America has this huge problem of police officers killing black people. And then on the other end, you have this narrative about how we have this huge problem of hate speech in America and how we need to stop that. And you probably have perception from other people from first world countries who don't share the same liberties of as America, but they see that like, oh, wow, you have all these really awful alt-writers there speaking, uh, espousing all these offensive uh, views and and talking about hate speech and all of that. Uh, that's, that's definitely not good. So you should be doing something to try and prevent these people from speaking. But in reality, it's like the media tries to push as one narrative, but when you actually survey what people believe, one they don't really think that there's much of a like divide among the races. I mean, they may believe that they're under attack, but I think most people are not going to espouse racist views towards one another. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you have a significant amount of people on the left who probably do, but I think normal Americans don't have those types of views. And on the other end, you also have a clear majority of people who believe that political correctness is hurting our, uh, our society. Maybe college students don't believe that, but college students are still a minority within America, and it seems like normal Americans do believe that you should be protecting free speech. Well, let me make some hate speech as an um, expression of my free speech. One question is that nearly 70% of Americans strongly 
and this is not just uh, this is this is one category strongly believe that all races are equal and my hateful speech includes the words that this is despite obvious evidence of the socioeconomic distributions within society uh, that are replicated globally that we see every day um, for example fortune.com uh, wrote an article uh, saying complaining about the fact that seven out of ten senior executives in fortune 500 companies are white men and less than one percent of those ceos are black yet 70 nearly just about 75% of NBA players in 2015 were black players. Guess how many Asians? 0.2%. Blacks are also incarcerated, FYI, at a rate of more than six times the white population. That's according to the Bureau of uh, Justice Statistics. And if we look at SAT scores, Asians, well, they do pretty well, uh, just about 75 points ahead of their next competitors, which are the whites. And um, they are nearly 400 points ahead of the uh, least competitive, and those are the blacks. Um, are those racist or hateful statements? I don't feel hateful when I say them. Uh, I don't feel particularly racist when I say them. I just uh, feel like I'm observing reality as it is. And the fact that I can't say these and people will get quite, will begin to hate me for saying this, which has been my experience. If you say these things, people do get quite hateful. Um, that's, uh, I think that's what the true hate speech is. And um, so it depends on which side of it you're on. So I think essentially what, what we should be doing as Americans leveraging our free speech is looking at reality as it really is. And um, if equality isn't a useful term for describing reality and making reality better for everybody that's participating in it, um, maybe we shouldn't focus so exclusively on it because it seems to be causing a lot of yeah, problems. I'll pose one uh, fun case of mental gymnastics for you. So when we think about athletics, in this case, we can use the NBA, we think about a great basketball player. So there are two things that probably go into it at the bare bones level. One is work ethic and two is ability. So while having a really strong work ethic will help you become good at the sport, if you want to become one of the best and be able to compete at the level that the NBA competes at, you need to have just innate talent. And I think if you were to say, okay, well, Kobe Bryant, one, he was an incredibly hard worker, but two, he also had this incredibly innate talent at, to be one of the best basketball players around, and people wouldn't really dispute that because it, they'll say like, oh, he's just naturally athletic. He has this natural sense. There are certain skills as a basketball player you just have to instinctually know. They can't be taught. But when we try to mirror this example from the athletic realm to the, let's say, intellectual realm, then we run into some problems here. So then you'll say, okay, well, you have two people. Well, as we can see, Asians have much higher uh, SAT scores than, than blacks do. Uh, part of it is probably hard work, but a lot of it is, I would argue, a majority of it is just due to a natural difference in intelligence. So while one group of people might be better athletes, and that is very useful for a huge realm of, of activities, so not only is it good for sports, but it's also in, in the working world is very great for manual labor jobs and other jobs that require a lot of physical endurance and strength, where you, you have another group of people who are more skilled for uh, white-collar work and jobs that require a lot more uh, brain power. And I think each group has a place in society, but it's really not that controversial to say that, you know, 
one person is good and they just have a natural ability that makes them a lot better. And while hard work can help, it just won't necessarily bridge that gap. Yeah, and if you think about what we do know, um, we do know that human beings evolved over tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years in dif different disparate locations, breeding with other humans far away from one another. And we also accept evolution as the primary uh, modus of uh, human and uh, essentially the development of all matter. We, assume, we accept evolution as the primary theory of explaining how things are the way they are. So if you have different groups of humans evolving in different locations that have different environmental conditions, it is quite natural to expect that they will develop different strengths and weaknesses based on that environment. So the, as the theory goes, um, people that were more northern developed larger brains so that they could plan because the ones that didn't simply died in winter. If you don't have your organization system in check, uh, and you don't have provisions for the winter and a tidy home that you can keep warm, that's it for you. You're done. That's not going to happen in the south. Whereas in the south, you may have a more density of predators and physical strength is going to come in handy where you may be very good at planning in the south. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to plan quite a bit to handle those things. Evolution takes very different tracks. Um, so when that brings us to present day, we have different conditions and different people um that we should be celebrating as diversity because that's life it's fascinating to look at different people who developed in different conditions just like a botanist enjoys looking at plants in, in a different place or a zoologist enjoys looking at uh, animals um but to uh to hold each other hostage or ransom for um the actions of nature over the course of perhaps millions of years is more absurd than just about anything i can think of so I think it's uh, a bit more reasonable to accept these differences. And as you mentioned, if we can have differences in labor that are mutually supportive, such as, um, you know, higher cognitive skills versus higher physical skills, well, then we have a natural marriage. We can actually operate in society potentially. At least it's something and we can try. I think like the issue is that if people aren't willing to have this discussion or just aren't knowledgeable about this, then they're going to go into a certain type of field. So let's say you have someone who's more suited for physical activity rather than um, jobs that require extremely high intelligence and they try to enter that field that requires that level of intelligence. I think they might, they'll start to feel inferior as to like, why am I not as good as my peers? Why can't I excel at this job? I'm working really hard, but I just don't get it. The issue is like, if you can't come to terms that maybe you just don't have the natural ability to be great at this certain profession it's really going to weigh on you you're going to feel very insecure and you feel like man i'm really not good enough for this but part of it's like and we kind of touch on it at the surface like okay well maybe that profession wasn't really for you maybe you should try to something else that you have a lot more interest in so we we attack these issues from a very superficial perspective and it says we beat around the bush without actually addressing what the crux of the problem is and I think if you actually have a candid conversation of figuring out what your strengths and weaknesses are and then figuring out what you should do with your life so that you can go and engage in professions and activities that really highlight your strengths and avoid pitfalls that will just bring you down, I think people have a lot higher standard of living than they are right now. Yeah, and let's keep in mind that it's a bell curve. It's not... Um 
It's, it's not an absolute division or distribution. So you may have, you will have overlaps and you, it may, you, you will have a considerable amount of, you know, blacks that achieve even higher than the average Asian on an SAT, but the outliers on the Asians will still exceed just about everybody else. Um, so you don't want to fall into the thinking. I think few people do. I think this is a straw man from the left. But nevertheless, I think it deserves being said uh, to be said that, um, you know, not every black person will be suited for this kind of uh, labor work if they're strong and not every white person if they're uh, will be suited for white collar work um, if they're not intelligent. But nevertheless, you'll have those average distributions. And we both met in London. And one thing that I observed about British society that I felt found peculiar at the time was that everybody, quote, knew their place. And as an American, I didn't really like this idea because I like the kind of entrepreneurial um, grassroots, do it yourself and take your destiny in your hands and rise as high as you possibly can, as high as your, your capability will take you. And I found this a bit strange and, and perhaps a bit stifling. But over time, as I became more accustomed to it, I realized that they had they didn't want to go anywhere. Typically, people from different strata of society, except for a few in London business, because that's a more of a volatile place. Things are moving. That's the traditional market. But in, in this kind of more stable class system, most people were content where they were, and they didn't want to uh, elevate themselves or you know deescalate de themselves, which is necessary. If some somebody goes up, somebody's going down. We don't talk about that too much. Um, but they were, they were happy with where they were. And no matter what I said, they wouldn't be convinced otherwise because it was deeper than my own arguments or my thoughts. It was culture. And that's something that I think we suffer from. It's the sense of uh, anxiety of never quite being enough. In America, we're never ha really happy with ourselves, as a, culturally speaking, unless we uh, achieve all of our dreams, which are usually, you know, becoming the rock star or becoming someone rich and famous. And most people don't achieve that. And so you have to live with a life of broken dreams. And that's not pleasant. They never have to live with a life of broken dreams. So how that relates to these, these racial elements is when you're radically integrating people, despite um, evidence to the contrary, um, and we're not a meritocratic system, I think, is best. And if someone can rise above a position that they're in, they absolutely should. Um, but nevertheless, if uh, this integration causes a tremendous amount of friction and anxiety, and it creates uh, a resentment. And so a lot of these racial tensions that we're seeing is are probably the result. I think there will always be tensions, but a lot of these tensions, I think, are the result of this forced radical integration. So they're kind of, once again, they're causing the problem, and then they're looking to themselves to, uh, to be the solution of the problem. It's quite an interesting loop they've got there. I agree. And I think just uh, to leave the listeners with some food for thought, it, it's, I think it's interesting to think about. Well, you want to just normally say like, oh, if I work really hard, I can probably make it into the NFL or some sort of elite sports league to that. So why don't we just, uh, why don't we think about that in the same way we think about competing in white collar professions and professions that require a high level of intelligence. And I think if we're going to be bringing some of these people from uh, areas that have a lot lower levels of intelligence, we have to be frank and like, we don't really have a good way of raising IQ within the generation. Maybe it gets better uh, with succeeding generations, but a lot of it is going to be due to hereditary factors. And so instead of 
you know, getting down about like, okay, maybe we're not going to achieve all of our dreams. What would be more worthwhile is to think about why don't we invest more resources in understanding how can we actually raise people's intelligence levels so that, let's say maybe they're not naturally talented enough, but we have these new teaching abilities uh, and techniques to help raise their intelligence so that they can at least try to compete in some of these professions instead of going in with this this fake idea, false narrative that they'll be able to become extremely successful in the profession when they're just inadequately prepared for that. I think with that, um, I think this is a good place to uh, end this episode. So I want to thank you all for listening to Unfiltered and Intellectual Podcast. It's been a pleasure.